Well, it's good to see you all today. If you're new or visiting, welcome to Solid Rock. Uh, my name is Matt, and I'd love to, to meet you before you leave. Um, we are continuing today and concluding our treatment of the short book of Philemon. So this is the third and final week that we are exploring this letter that Paul wrote to Philemon, a believer at the church in Colossae. Paul writes this letter to him about his slave named Onesimus. So we have been in this conversation for several weeks regarding the issue of slavery. Um, The theme that we encounter today, though, in the letter is... I think, relevant more broadly to our lives and to our communities. It's not just understood in the context of the issue of slavery. It obviously impacts that issue, as we see in this letter, but I think it's relevant to our lives more broadly than that. I don't typically like dealing in absolutes, but I'm going to. My my guess is that everyone in this room has experienced broken, fractured relationships. Maybe your fault, maybe somebody else's fault, or maybe there's enough blame to go around. Maybe it's something fairly inconsequential or perhaps it was due to a significant offense. Whatever the case might be, I think this letter, particularly the last half of this letter, which we will read today, I think it provides some helpful guardrails for individuals in the church as we seek to be a place of reconciliation. You've probably noticed throughout this morning's liturgy the prayers that we've prayed together, the songs that we have sang, that reconciliation is what we are working towards this morning in our conversation. So let's jump right into the text. We'll pick it up where Austin stopped reading, where we stopped last week as well with verse 15. This is what Paul says to Philemon. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, speaking of Onesimus, his slave, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord." I'm sending him back to you, Paul says to Philemon, but understand when he comes back, he is coming not as a bondservant, but he's coming to you as a brother. Your relationship with this man has changed based upon your membership in the family of God. I don't care what society tells you is appropriate in your relationship. You are now a follower of Jesus, and that transforms everything about you, including how you relate to this man who has been your slave. Everything about you changes. So keep in mind, this is... For the first century Roman world, this was revolutionary. This was radical and placed really incredible demands on Philemon, placed these incredible demands on the individual in the situation that had the social power. We'll come back to that in a moment. Now, it appears in this part of the letter that 
Maybe the ultimate goal was that Onesimus might return from Philemon. He might return to Paul eventually and help with the mission in the church in the city of Ephesus. But Paul sends him back to Philemon first. Perhaps this move is made by Paul because he understands that according to Roman law, it was um, a crime to harbor a fugitive slave. But I, I think more importantly, what's going on here is Paul's understanding of the importance of reconciliation between brothers and sisters in Christ. It is essential to the health of the church and must be pursued, according to Paul, even at great cost. So Onesimus may very well end up back in Ephesus with Paul, but not until Philemon, his slave owner, has sought reconciliation with him. Paul says, I'm sending him back to you so that you might have him forever as a brother. This is a much more radical step than simple manumission. It would have conceivably been a much easier step for Philemon just to release Onesimus, because then they could go in their separate directions and never have to deal with some of the history they have. So this is an important conversation for us to continue having, because we understand the horror of slavery for what it is. At least we, we like to think we understand that. And slavery is essentially universally condemned um, in today's day and age. But how often do we ignore the importance of reconciliation? Do we tend to see reconciliation, a bringing back of things that were broken, do we tend to see that it is worth the cost? It's a question that I have to ask of myself, one that is quite difficult to answer. Because how often would we hold a grudge? Or how often would we internally or maybe even verbally condemn another brother or sister in Christ because they wronged us? How often would I completely write off somebody else because of some pain that I have experienced? I think Paul would tell us it ought not to be so. Now, before we continue in this conversation, please don't mishear me. I understand that there are cases of abuse where separation in that relationship is both necessary and healthy. And if you have been the victim, you know when you are able to work through some of the pain you have experienced. When we're talking about issues of abuse, especially those involving children, I think the victim gets to set the terms moving forward. I don't think the victimizer demands reconciliation right now, immediately. So that's not what we're talking about in this conversation. Um, maybe the question would be raised, well, is peace in our relationships always going to be possible? And I think the answer is no, peace will not always be possible. The Apostle Paul concedes that much in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, where he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So there are situations when we long for peace, and maybe the other party involved is not interested in pursuing that peace, so peace isn't going to be possible in those situations. 
Perhaps it's also possible, though, that personal contact is no longer going to be appropriate, at least for a time. I think that's certainly the case in instances of child abuse. So what we have to understand when we begin this conversation dealing with reconciliation is that reconciliation does not look the same in every situation. It is not a one-size-fits-all endeavor. And this is one of the really challenging things about pursuing reconciliation in the body of Christ. So at the beginning of this conversation, we, we need to understand that we can't assume that reconciliation is easy. Think about this passage that we're reading in Philemon. Paul wants Philemon and Onesimus, his slave, to be reconciled as brothers. Think about their history. There are quite possibly some dark moments in their relational history. Think about those personal dynamics. And Paul is asking both of these individuals to face that past honestly and to find a way to move forward together based on their new reality that they have in Christ Jesus. Let's continue reading. Verse 17, so if you consider me your partner, receive him, speaking to Philemon about Onesimus, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, don't you love that from Paul? <laughs> really putting the pressure on Philemon. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. I love this part of the letter from Paul, not just because he gets a little salty, but because Paul's example is really quite inspiring and challenging. The sacrifice that he is willing, the things he is willing to give up to pursue reconciliation, because he understands that reconciliation, which he is arguing for throughout this letter, he understands that it not only places demands on Philemon and Onesimus, but it's going to cost him something as well. Reconciliation never comes cheaply. It will cost anyone who seeks it, even if you're not directly involved in the situation. If you long for reconciliation, it will cost. But Paul says it's so important to the life of the church and the life of followers of Jesus that it should be pursued. Yes, it is messy. Reconciliation in our relationships isn't as simple as, well, just forgive the person who has wronged you. Forgiveness is something we as the body of Christ are commanded to do. It is a vital spiritual practice, but reconciliation is even more involved than simple forgiveness. It is more challenging. It's more costly. It's more messy. It is uncomfortable. Reconciliation involves not moving on as though nothing happened. Reconciliation is not ignoring the past, not brushing the pain and offense under the rug, but intentionally bringing it into the light of Christ that we might be honest about what's going on 
that we might be honest about the rift that has occurred in our relationship or the thing that has caused us pain and fractured that relationship so that we can figure out a way to move forward together, a way that is acceptable to all involved. How can we move forward and how can I work through my pain so that I could hopefully become vulnerable again? So Paul says, Philemon, this is what I'm calling you to do. Why? Because this is how the body of Christ functions. I don't care what society at large looks like. Is that a timer to tell me I'm going too long? (laughs) If so, I, I can turn this right back over. But that's pretty early in the sermon to to give me a clue. I think I have a little more time than that. This is what I'm calling you to do, Paul says. This is how the body of Christ functions. I don't care what society at large looks like. This is what you are to do. You need to receive Onesimus as you would receive me because there's no distinction between us. There is no room for partiality in your relationship. You you shouldn't treat me as one of the leaders of the church, Paul says, any differently than you would treat your slave, Onesimus. Paul says, I'm going to show you how important this is to me. I'm willing to sacrifice for these efforts. If Onesimus owes you anything, if he owes you some money because maybe he stole money from you to make his run for freedom, that is quite possible, taking into consideration some of the context of what Paul says here. If he stole money from you, I am going to repay that. I am willing to sacrifice for these efforts. That's how important reconciliation is. So Paul instructs Philemon, receive him as you would receive me, Treat him as you would treat me, and let's get this issue in the open so that we can move forward. So what do we discover so far in this conversation about reconciliation? I think, first of all, reconciliation involves honesty. There is no hope for reconciliation without honesty about the pain that has been caused. So we could think of it this way. Issues of hurt that we have experienced... Maybe wrongs that we have done or wrongs that have been done to us when they remain in the dark, when it stays in the shadows, they have the power to continue nurturing hatred in our souls, and that is infectious. Uh, Again, this is not to simplify the relationship between justice and mercy, because in the conversation about reconciliation, both justice and mercy are integral parts of that process. It is an incredibly complex and difficult thing to pursue. Fleming Rutledge argues that if we offer premature impunity to those who have caused harm to others, often that injustice is going to continue. And that can have devastating consequences for the Christian community because it neglects an aspect of God's character. If, as we argued several weeks ago, God is a just God who hates injustice, if God's new creation, which we are participating in and in which we are expectantly waiting for, If God's new creation is not just, Rutledge argues, we make a mockery of God's promises to those who are defenseless and exploited by the powerful. 
So this is messy. It is complex. There is this difficult interplay between justice and mercy when we seek reconciliation. We, we actually, from history, we see that messy mix of justice and mercy displayed on a global scale in the South African Truth and Reconciliation Committee. This was an effort that was started seeking to bring recon reconciliation and restoration to the devastating fallout after decades and decades of apartheid in South Africa. And once those policies ended, there were attempts not just to move on as though nothing happened, not to move on as though there was no pain, and pain caused, but to figure out a way to bring those harms into the open so that they could move on together. Commenting on some of these efforts, Desmond Tutu admitted this. He said, reconciliation does not come easy. Believing that it does will ensure that it will never be. We have to look the beast firmly in the eyes. But he went on, we seek to do justice to the suffering without perpetuating the hatred aroused. And this is the revolutionary Christian ethic of reconciliation at the center of Paul's thought. It is quite easy for us in our desire for justice to provide breeding ground for hatred. And as followers of Jesus, we want to, to seek to avoid that hatred. We want honesty. Yes, we want a recognition of the wrongs done, but we seek justice for those who have suffered without arousing hatred. And that is the seemingly impossible ethic that Christ calls us to. So keep in mind, this in Philemon, this is all taking place in public. This is going to require some uncomfortable conversations. Philemon is not going to be able to ignore what Paul has said. Why? Because the entire church in Colossae has heard it. He's not going to be able to move on as though he has caused no pain for Onesimus. He's going to have to admit that what he has done is wrong, and seek restoration with this man. If we desire reconciliation, it always begins with listening and understanding, seeking understanding with the individual or the other parties involved. It also involves honesty, a commitment to change on behalf of the one who has caused the harm. Paul isn't calling Onesimus to simply forgive Philemon. I think that is a part of the Christian work of reconciliation, but Paul admits that something needs to change in this social arrangement. There is a lot of responsibility that Philemon has in bringing restoration to this situation. Rutledge argues that forgiveness is not a simple or expeditious endeavor. Forgiveness, if we're thinking of it in terms of Christian, Christian reconciliation, is complex. It is demanding on both parties. The offending party has to be willing to admit their wrongdoing. They have to be honest about what they have caused, the pain that they have caused in somebody else's life. They must be willing to, in humility, seek forgiveness from that person 
and they must be willing to listen. The offender doesn't get to set the terms, I don't think, for this process moving forward. No, if I have caused harm, my responsibility is to say, I have wronged you. I am sorry. What can I do to make this right? And maybe what I need to do to make this right is to leave you alone for a while, not to demand immediate forgiveness or reconciliation. But when you're ready, I'm here, I understand that I am in the wrong, and I want to do anything I can to make this right. So there are demands placed on the one with power in the situation. Maybe the more uncomfortable part are the demands placed on the one who has been harmed. The one who has been harmed, for there to be reconciliation, has to desire to move beyond this. They have to desire to seek restoration, and that is a tremendous step in many cases that is costly. And again, to be sure, forgiveness involves justice in these situations. Restoration and reconciliation involve a righting of the wrong that has been done. But what we must remember, as Fleming Rutledge poignantly argues, is that everybody is in need of justice and mercy. Everybody is in need of justice and mercy. We all have ways in which we have been abused or hurt or disregarded. We also all have ways in which we have done the same to others. That's what makes reconciliation so messy. It's not a one-size-fits-all affair, and it won't be perfect in this life. So how can we work towards reconciliation and restoration in a way that is meaningful and lasting? Or maybe the better question is, can we? Is that even a possibility? Can we do anything to right all the wrongs that have been done even in our own lifetimes? And my response to that question would be, well, probably not. We can't fix it all. We can do something. We we can work towards reconciliation, but our efforts only go so far. There are limits to the effectiveness of our efforts to reconcile and restore everything that is broken. We can't fix every injustice. We, I don't even know that we can entirely fix a single issue of injustice. We can't right every wrong. Some injustices are simply too profound, the pain too deep for us to resolve. So sure, we have work to do, we have a part to play in that, but ultimately our efforts at justice can't fix it all. And maybe that sounds discouraging or sounds like we are conceding victory to the powers of evil, but I don't think that's the case. I'm I'm convinced that this is a central part of the Christian hope. The hope of the gospel is that we are powerless to fix ourselves, We are powerless to fix everything that has gone wrong in creation. And so our hope is in deliverance from that bondage that comes from Christ alone. Our hope is that Christ alone will, in the end, right every wrong. 
the suffering that you have experienced, the wrongs that have been done to you, Christ will execute perfect justice, a justice that you may not be able to experience in this life. But our hope is that God is just. God is just, God hates injustice, and he is skilled, that's what the prophet says, he is skilled at executing justice. And that may be something that you can't even imagine in the moment. And so we simply try to cling to that hope that Christ will one day reconcile this situation. And for Paul, the cross of Jesus Christ sort of gathers up all of that complexity in that it reveals to us the heart of God, willing to sacrifice greatly himself in the cross to fix everything that has gone wrong, to right all injustices, to deliver us all. Rutledge went on and said this. She said, it is not only the victims of oppression and injustice who are in need of God's deliverance, but also the victimizer. She said, each of us is capable under certain, circ certain circumstance of being a victimizer. All of us, you and I, equally in need of justice and mercy. So I want to begin wrapping this up today with some very simple practical steps that we can take as individuals in this faith community to offer a model of reconciliation to our world. I think the first step is that we have to desire it. We have to see that this is a part of the gospel and that this is a goal that we are working towards and will one day be the reality for all. We desire that reconciliation. Remember, when we think of forgiveness and reconciliation, it is not pretending that an injury doesn't matter. It's not insinuating that the pain is going to be gone. It's not forgetting the injustice that was done. It doesn't even mean that the relationship is going to be the same as it was before the offense. But we desire reconciliation. We look forward to that as a reality in the world to come. And so in living in line with what the reality will one day be, we resist becoming vindictive. That's the way our world operates, but we operate differently. We want our brokenness to become whole. We want division to be unified once again. So we desire reconciliation. We must be humble. If there's any hope of reconciliation, it will require humility. I have to understand that I have probably hurt somebody I have probably caused somebody pain. I know that I have. Some of those instances I'm aware of. Some I may not even know of the pain that I have caused. So I have to be humble about that. And when I discover pain that I have caused, or when somebody informs me about some hurt that they have experienced because of me, I have to be willing in humility to say, yeah, you're probably right. And I'm sorry. I have wronged you without qualification, 
I don't need to go on explaining why I acted in a certain way, but I need to, in humility, be willing to recognize the pain that I have caused. And then I may need to give that person space. They might not be able in that moment to begin working towards reconciliation. And as the one who has caused pain, I don't get to require that in this moment. I simply acknowledge the pain that I have caused, say, I want to make this right. I'm willing to sacrifice to do so. If and when you're ready to pursue that, I'm here and I will be ready for that conversation. So we desire reconciliation. We must be humble. And then I think just as, just as important, we must listen. Seek understanding from the one that we have hurt or maybe the one who has hurt you. Maybe you're misunderstanding motives in the situation. Maybe not. But none of that will ever be brought out into the open until there is a willingness to listen to the other person involved. Anglican scholar Scott McKnight argues that these are the demands that this letter places on us today. He said, the church is to be first space of reconciliation in our communities. First among its own people, and second as reconciled people who strive for reconciliation in society. At the core of the gospel message is reconciliation a restoring of what has been broken. And the church of all places in our society should be a place where this is modeled in a healthy and honest way. And just think about the possibilities if we modeled this type of restoration. As we sang in the song this morning, they will know we are Christians by our love. I think that reconciliation process is a big part of that. And yes, of course, relational dynamics will change from time to time. They just do. The past will impact the future. We will have scars from pain we have experienced, and maybe those scars will last the rest of our lives. But what if we could imagine and embody a new radical restorative reality in our relationships. That restoration, that reconciliation is first going to require that we give up insisting that we maintain our assumptions, or I assume I know what my brother or sister is going through, or I assume their intentions. If we want to do the hard work of restoration of any kind, whether we're talking about the big issues at work in our society. Maybe we would think of racial reconciliation that our world so desperately needs today. Or, or maybe we would think of much smaller and individual instances of fractured relationships, maybe even in this room. If we want to see reconciliation, we must be willing to lay our assumptions aside and listen begins with listening and seeking understanding and having conversation. Requires honesty about our failures and a commitment to move forward into equity. Brotherly, sisterly love, the bond of peace, the bond of love that is stronger than any difference.
This is the Christian goal of reconciliation. Kevin, if you want to come up. Austin, if you join me as we prepare for communion. As followers of Jesus live out this reality of reconciliation, this reality of liberation in Christ, relational restoration, in so doing, we are offering to our world a visible alternative a visible alternative to relational strife, or in the context of this letter, we offer a visible alternative to oppression like slavery, a visible alternative to domination, to relational strife, to animosity. And that alternative, I think, draws people to the beauty of Christ the one who will execute justice perfectly on behalf of those who have been wronged. So we work towards it, but ultimately we are awaiting, we are awaiting what Christ, the perfectly just God we serve, the restoration he will bring to our relationships. Would you stand this morning? As we gather around the table of our Lord today, our minds are taken to the great sacrifice that our God, that Christ endured on behalf of the reconciliation and restoration of all things. And as our minds are taken to this reality, we are both comforted by what Christ has offered us, but we are also called into this difficult terrain of seeking that re reconciliation in our relationships. So our prayer today is that in this meal, as we partake, as we are nourished, that we would feel the comfort that Christ is offering us, the hope that Christ offers us, that we also might be drawn deeper into his life and to his example. So by way of invitation, I'd invite you to say this prayer together with me. It's the prayer of St. Francis. Before we do, just as a practical matter, if you're new or visiting, we will for form two lines down the center aisle. You can come forward. Somebody will be up here with the, the cup and the bread, and the words will be spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Would you join me in this prayer, the prayer of St. Francis, a difficult prayer indeed. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light and where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying to self that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Amen. Would you join us at the table this morning?